listening to the Blood Sucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three F's bangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kaylee. And you're listening to episode 24 God Hates Fangs, or Dead Until Dark by Charlene Harris and the TV show True Blood, season one. So it's our second fang anniversary. Hooray! What do, we, what do we get? What's the second anniversary gift? Because the first is paper. Clocks? Is it? Somewhere in the modern, um... It's cotton, apparently. One's the first. <laughs> so do we buy ourselves nice plates or a t-shirt, or do we just get both? I don't know, but next year it's leather. Oh, well, that will be for True Blood Season 2 then. <laughs> We're all just, you know, sitting here squeaking in leather pants. (laughs) I think this is the show that's been a long time coming. I think this was the one that we talked about being one of our first episodes and then realised we'd have to watch a lot lot of things, so we kind of waited. Yeah, plus we did touch on it a lot with the uh, Drew Blood episode, the vampire musicals that really didn't work episode, leading into how True Blood the musical could not suck. But it probably will, like, let's be honest. It's going to suck in at least one respect. Womp womp. Come on, this is from the mind that brought to you Fangiversary, so. <laughs> it's not going to get any better from here, everyone. No, I mean, I remember when True Blood premiered, because it was 2008, and Twilight, the first movie, had just come out. The, the fourth book, Breaking Dawn, I believe, had come out that summer as well. So it was really this kind of perfect moment of pop culture vampirism synergy you know the popularity mm-hmm. of vampires and paranormal fiction and urban fantasy had never been more potent certainly in the mainstream so in that aspect alan ball's timing is really spot on alan ball was the showrunner for true blood he's best known as the uh the screenwriter for american beauty and he was also the guy in charge of six feet under so there was certainly an expectation to come along with this show, which is, oh, well, here's a man of prestige, you know, very serious drama. So what's going to happen in this, you know, very potent, very um, hard-hitting, relevant satirical take on vampires? And it's like, no. Naked people. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> Sex, death, sexy death. Pretty much. I mean, there is more to it in the first season, I think. The first season, after that, it never remained as critically enjoyed in later seasons. Especially by about seasons five, six, and seven, where the critics were just like, you know, I'm out. (laughs) You know, you do what you've got to do, because this is just bonkers and I don't care anymore. But the thing about the show is as well, and I think that this gets unfairly maligned in this sense... Uh, the show ended in 2014, I believe, and it's since then, it's never really been critically looked at in the same way as other shows of that era, or even other HBO shows from that era. Even though there was a period in time where True Blood was easily the most popular thing on HBO. You know, this is pre-Game of Thrones, well, it ended 2013, I should say, so it's pre-Game of Thrones, it's post Sex and the City. I believe The Sopranos had ended by this point in time. So we're in this age where it's in between the beginning of prestige TV and the beginning of peak TV. You know, we're, we're sort of in that, that central state mm-hmm. there. But people tuned in to watch True Blood 
and those people were not exclusively but mostly women and I wonder if that's one of the reasons that the show is kind of sort of excluded from the conversation in terms of its its power, its influence, its uh, sort of role in that particular era of TV. There's a lot more naked men than there are two naked whores pretending to be to have sex or some guy talks to the screen. Because, <laughs> you know, that's some masterful television right there. I mean, it's a very camp show at times. It's very melodramatic. I don't think its attempt at serious satire works in the way Alan Ball is hoping it would work. We'd get to that later. But it is, you know, it's a genre show that is mostly about the issues of women, where most of the men on it are basically the female gaze impersonate, you know, personified. And I wonder if that was just something that when people look back on the show, all they think is, oh, that was kind of trashy. It's like, well, yeah, it was trashy, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth it. Like, the first season of the show was brilliant. There are issues with it, but like, you know, I'll take this over, oh, let's have this conversation in a brothel for some reason. So I came to True Blood, um, well, kind of, sort of, through the books and that I read the books before the TV show came out, but not very long before. Um, I heard that the True Blood TV show was coming and and that Anna Packham was doing a, a show about vampires and... I've always had a bit of a soft spot for for Anna Paquin and parents. We went to the same school, albeit different times. You know, this was the time when all the fan sites were shooting up for True Blood in preparation for the uh, TV show to come out. And somehow I entered a contest for uh, one of the Comic-Con goodie bags with a t-shirt and the first book and a bag. And somehow I won. I read the book and I'm like, this, this is the book that is my life. It, it just had everything that I didn't know I ever wanted. It had the mystery. It had vampires. Okay, I knew I wanted vampires in my life, but not to you know, the point that really stemmed from this. It had romance. It had drama. And then the TV show came along, and I'm like, damn, there's a lot of naked people here. I'm not going to watch this in any room of the house that somebody else could walk into. Smart decision, yeah. No, seriously, I was like, okay... Is anybody at the house this weekend? I need to watch the first season of the show before this episode. But halfway through an episode, somebody comes up, turn off the TV, turn off the TV! Because, of course, at that point, Jason and Dawn were having sex. <laughs> like, really, really loud sex. I'm like, no, no, volume, volume off, stop! Oh, bless. Stop. <laughs> of course it didn't do that. I'm just like, Rah! you know, throw the TV in the bathtub kind of thing. Just anything to stop it. So a couple of years ago, uh, Charlene Harris, uh, I forget for which book, Charlene Harris did a tour of, of New Zealand, which by I mean like three cities. And I went to the Wellington talk and signing. And she spoke about how the idea for Dead Until Dark and the rest of the Southern Vampire Mysteries series came along. Yes, it's actually called the Southern Vampire Mysteries. Not many people realize this. They just think of it as the True Blood books or occasionally the Sookie Stackhouse books. But the idea was she had the idea of a, a, a woman falls in love with a vampire. She's like, why on earth would a woman fall in love with a vampire? I mean... He's got all this shit behind him. He can't go out during the day. He can't really have children or much of a normal life. You're going to grow old and die or you're going to have to become a vampire. 
So she had to figure out a way to make him seem like a more acceptable choice than any of the humans around her. Thus, the telepathy was born. Now, I admit, every time she refers to it as a disability, I wince. Yeah. Like, I, I get what, from the point of view, which she would consider it something that is really debilitating to her, because it does seem to screw up her life a lot, but it is not entirely, you know, it's not really an accurate parallel to make. There's bits where she talks about how it has impact, it, it impacted her schooling. She's actually quite bright, but her education severely suffered because of the constant feedback of everyone else's thoughts and things like that. When she's left to read on her own, write on her own, study and do tests on her own, she's absolutely fine. But when she's surrounded by everyone else, her education and learning took a huge hit. It's kind of like an inverted, you've got a disability, but you've got a superpower to compensate a la... Um, Daredevil. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a big trend. It's sort of an inverted. She's got a supernatural ability, and she sees it more as a disability because she's not had an opportunity to use it in a badass way. Yeah, but that's also a really common thing in a lot of genre fiction, which is, I mean, that's what superhero fiction is built on: is let's take real life issues, real life elements, and turn them into big metaphors. So that's how you get stuff like, like Daredevil. Or X-Men as well, which is, you know, is this a you know, metaphor for the civil rights movement? Is this a metaphor for the LGBTQ rights movement? It very well could be, but, you know, it depends how it's played. Like, I think in the movies it's played up a little more, at least well, in the early X-Men movies. As written, why too, why? But also it's when you see things like, you know, like Tolkien's work, like where the only characters who are kind of coded as not being white are like the Orcs and the Urukai. And they go up against the, you know, the beautiful, refined... You know, poise of the elves who are all very lily white. Like, you don't really need to read into that too much. But hey, at least in this book and the TV show, we do see some vampires of colour. Whether that works out well for them is another matter. But for as pasty white as a lot of the characters are, there are a few that aren't. Which, you know, it's a show set in Louisiana. It would have been absolutely ridiculous for this thing to have an all white cast. You mean like um, Only Lovers Left Alive was set in Detroit. And yet, everybody was white except for Beatty from The Hunger Games. Yeah, I mean, you could almost justify that as well. They they don't go out <laughs> except at night, and they only hang around with... You know, they're introverts who only hang around with themselves, really, and a couple other people. So I could, I could almost read that justification. I won't, but you can do it. Well, here, you know, Suki Stackhouse doesn't have much of a social life, but she does have co-workers, she does go out, she does, you know have a life with her family and things like that and she does have friends who aren't white yeah it, it it still has its problems like some of the characters that end up being canon fodder tend more towards characters of color or characters who are not um, heterosexual yeah but there is an attempt to portray a slightly more realistic picture unfortunately Charlene Harris and other creators fall into that very white person trope of making sure the important people die, <laughs> the important people don't die, and those important people tend to be white because they don't think. And let's talk about Tara, who in the books is just is kind of a non-player. She's a friend of Suki's, but she's not really active in the action of the central stories. 
she has her moments, but you know the way that she, her character diverges from the canon in the book makes her a much bigger player. Yeah, she's just a friend of Suki's who shows up and occasionally, especially when Suki's trying to be more human and spend time around humans, which as the books progress is something that she does actively strive for sometimes. Mostly when she realizes how fucked up everything is, which is more than one occasion. But she's just a friend. She sort of at one point owns a, a clothing shop called Tara's Togs. Is Togs like clothing in America? Because we, what we call Togs here oh. are swimsuits. And so when she went down to Tara's Togs and bought like actual clothes, I'm like, what? America is weird. Um, I think Britain sometimes calls them Togs. It's, not, it's an old fashioned word for. Yeah, that sounds like New Zealand were a few decades behind England. Although that means we haven't insected. it. Insexited? But in terms of Tara, so I, I completely understand the thing that Alan Ball is going for here. In the series, Tara has lived a much tougher life. Her mother is alcoholic. Uh, she's neglectful. She's apparently on some level quite abusive. Um, and she's kind of a zealot as well and basically Tara's kind of stuck with her desperately wanting to escape but also feeling too guilty to actually escape and she has a lot of um, residual anger and resentment and she tends to lash out at people usually through her job you know this is a woman who should not be in customer service and yet somehow is Seriously, why did she even get past the interview? She seems like the kind of person who would have. I get the feeling the that this was nuts. kind of a similar situation to what she has with Sam, who then employs her later at the bar, which she just knew them. And he was like, "Are you going to snap at people? No. Okay, then let's give it a go." And then it didn't entirely go to plan. But we have her doing this very specific thing, which is this, you know, kind of, you know, simmering anger and resentment, and really, you know, struggling with this trauma that she has. Uh, but I think the way that it is written is very kind of quote-unquote angry black woman. And if it weren't for how wonderful Rutina Wesley is in that role, and how wonderful she is in everything, I don't know if that character would have worked. I think Alan Ball would have fallen too easily into making her, like, quote-unquote sassy. Yeah, it's like the moments when Tara goes silent and you can just see the wibble in her lips. And the way her eyes are just big and she's on the verge of something. That's when you can really see um, Rutina do something amazing. Because you can just see see everything in that one expression. Not in any of the yelling. Not in any of the slamming into whatever. Forcing her way into so-and-so's life or such and such a role. Just that, that moment when the wall comes down and you can just see everything. And we actually get to see more of Tara having relationships with other people, because not only is she, you know, she's working at the bar now with Sam and Suki, who's her best friend. She has this unrequited love for Jason for some goddamn reason. <laughs> um, no, it, it's Sean, because he protected her from her mother. Yeah, but he's also an idiot. <laughs> he's a very pretty idiot, you have to admit. He's not even the prettiest guy in the show. Yeah, well, that's really hard to achieve. Because, I mean, Alexander Skarsgård's on the damn show. <laughs> well, he does have that wig this season. Yeah, so that's like a couple of points off. But 
It's such a bad wig. Like, hey, this is HBO. Their wig budget must be better than this. They spent it all on the, the, the wax budget, I think. <laughs> Was the hair made from the leftover hair wax or something? Oh. I don't know, but they had to definitely up it by the time um, Elsie's came along. Just the, 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 the oil spray for the naked men. <laughs> I love how by season two they give up all like preconceptions about the haircut. And he's like, nope, no, nope, he's just got short hair now because we knew what you guys wanted. And you get to see it go. Yes. <laughs> uh, but sorry, back to Tara. Uh, she is not just Suki, Sam, Jason. She has relationships with it's Lafayette, who in this version is her cousin. See, in the books, Lafayette is one of those cannon fodder, uh, diverse characters. He He's there to be sassy and gay and black in the first book. And then in the beginning of the second book, he's murdered. Yay. And as you can see, by the end of the last episode of the first season, they were setting themselves up for whether or not they were going to do it, I think. Obviously, they didn't want... He gets replaced with Miss Jeanette, but... You could tell by the way they set it up, they were like, okay, we want to be open just in case, but we also know that the fans of the books are going to figure out pretty much straight away if we replace it with, like, a white leg or something. Yeah, I think one of the best decisions the show made was keeping him on, not just beyond season one, but all the way to season seven, because he becomes a major power player as well. He's a bitch. I also love, there's a scene in, uh, sorry, I love, there's a scene in the second episode where the first or second episode where Lafayette and Tara go to a party and it's um, basically you know it's a it seems to be an exclusively black party so you get the sense of you know coming to you know as part of a community and just sort of the, the comfort level really of not having to be the only black person in the room which Tara and Lafayette often seem to be even in Merlot's bar so you see um Lafayette in more of a sort of gangster mode, but also hitting on every straight man in the building. <laughs> Who was just standing there awkwardly? It's like, do 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 I dance with him? Do I grind? Do I just sort of stand here? <laughs> Am I going to be perceived as perceived as more or less manly if I dance with him? I want to dance with him, but I don't want to dance with him. Just being sucked into the vortex of everybody wants to have sex with Lafayette. Yeah. But also, I really love the way that Lafayette at this party has taken on that sort of more gangster style. He has the jewellery, he's got the hat, even like the way he walks into the room. And if you compare that with how he acts in the, in the, in the bar where he is one of the chefs, where he's wearing the earrings, he's got the fan, he is you know, the great guide that you need in your life. Um, so the way that he switches between those two roles is really fascinating. And also, remember, he's also working on the road site where Jason is when he gets arrested. He's code switching in multiple yeah. facets. So I think that is a really interesting element that I would have liked to have seen more of. I mean, I really would have liked to have seen more of Lafayette and Tara in general. Because I enjoy their, for fuck's sake, will you stop messing around with the vampires? It's like, oh god, these white people are idiots. Well, that there's an old Eddie Murphy stand-up joke where he says, "Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in it?" It's like that's very true. You got distracted by the um, thought of naked Alexander Skarsgård. I'm constantly distracted by that. 
it is just a daily part of my life. <laughs> You're probably posting that naked gif of him now. No, I didn't. St- well, now I have to. Sometime, somewhere, you are going to end up posting that gif again. Luke, you don't know me. So, um... <laughs> One of the things that I really like about this series, and I, f- I think does it better than the book, actually, is the way that some of the vampires completely embrace the stereotypes that humans have about them. Not necessarily the whole, you know, gonna break in your house and eat your children thing, but the idea of them being, like, the ultimate creatures of seduction and stuff. It's like, well, we've got to make a living as well. So, you know, sure, let's do this. They're marketing themselves. Yeah, and Eric's really good at that. So to go back to before Fantasia, I do have to say that the opening sequence of True Blood without any of the main characters, just the two, you know, college students, the clerk at the Grabbit Quack, the same place that Mordet work. I wonder if it's the exact same one, actually. And the... He is actually named the good old boy vampire is just the, the, the perfect opening for this show. It's got the sex of that's going to, you know, the hints of sex that are going to be full blown later on in the show. You've got the whole true blood, everyone thinks, you know, the whole excitement and the, of the exotic nature of the vampires, you know, oh my God, we've got a vampire, blah, 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 blah. We've got to go check this out. The, the stereotype of the vampire and how it's broken, and then just the whole, this is a southern redneck. Look at him with his confederate flag hat. Also, he's a vampire. And he'll fuck you, and then he'll eat you. I actually think that the, the, the first episode of the show, probably, the pilot really establishes what Alan Ball is aiming for, orig- at least what he was originally aiming for. Remember, he left by, I believe, the end of season five so there was a new showrunner in place for those final two seasons which also explains a lot um but i remember when the show was you know first being promoted and stuff and how heavily they played up what alan ball wanted to be the key analogy of this show which is in this universe the vampire rights movement the the fight to get public acceptance to actually get full legal recognition too with the vampire rights act is analogous to the LGBTQ rights movement. Okay, so I don't know if you got the recent newsletter, the, the recent LGBTQ newsletter. Is it in your inbox? Did you check the spam? Um, it always goes to spam, doesn't it? Yeah, you really got to fix that. I mean, meetings are, it's really hard to get to the meetings. You know, you got to find a place to sit. you got to bring it. Yeah. So I, I cannot speak for everyone in the group, you know. We haven't had that meeting, but... Um, Generally speaking, the LGBTQ community are not going to break into your house and eat your kids. The vampires totally are. And they seem really proud of the fact that they're going to do that. <laughs> like, there's a bit in one of the later episodes, which um, when we do the later seasons, we'll talk about it. Uh, but when we first but when we first meet um, Russell Edgington, played by Dennis O'Hare, we're one of the first times where he's he goes on television and he kills the newsreader. And he basically gives us rant as like, we don't want to be equal to you people, we're better than you, we're just going to break into your house and eat your children. Like, very few of the vampires in the show make an effort to conceal the fact that they just want to eat you. So it is just, it was kind of astounding to me that, I mean, the show really wants to push this idea that, you know, we're normal, um, you know, we pay our taxes, we just want the same rights as everyone else. Um, 
but this is like this the stereotype that like Mike Huckabee has about gay people is that they're all orgy ridden murderers. Yeah. The roots of this whole thing can be found in the books itself, but it's very, very minor. It's just more like Suki refers to them, you know, the newest legal minority. But it's it's not completely hammered in. It's just sort of that's how they're being presented, which if you look at people like Nan Flanagan and the end of the season where they talk about the first state to legalize vampire-human marriage, then with some heavy hints that um, Hoyt and Jessica are going to hook up. It really is, and of course, starting with Vermont, it's, again, really obvious that it's trying to do uh, a comparison to LGBTQ rights movement. But again, gay people aren't going to enter your house and eat your children. Lesbians, if you look at the history of vampire fiction, possibly. <laughs> Who knows about the bisexuals? It depends on the kind of mood they're in. But that's the thing is, there are really interesting elements in this show where they do play with the concept of, okay, so if this this did happen, if they came out of the coffin, so to speak, which is a line from the book, so I'm wondering if that's where Alan Ball got the, the notion from, what would be the opposition? So you see things like in the pilot, when they're in that convenience store, there is like the head of the vampire rights group debating with Bill Maher, which is totally a thing that would happen, and Bill Maher would be a total dick about it. Um, you get, you know, the talking heads on cable news shows that are the... Oh my god, I just realised something. Hmm? So, you know how Nan Flanagan is constantly deflecting? Mm-hmm. She's like an actually better at her job Kellyanne Conway. Yes. But looking more alive. <laughs> yeah, vampires wouldn't allow themselves to rot like that. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway needs to get in a couple of tru- bottles of True Blood at least. I wouldn't waste good gear. But I do think that one of the things as well we get is the um, the church of the Fellowship of the Sun, which is the church, the anti-vampire church, headed by Steve Newland, who later on becomes one of my favourite characters when he becomes a vampire himself and is also gay. <laughs> he just goes full on. <laughs> no, he just turns up on Jason's door and not only is he gay and a vampire, but he's got the sweater vest tied around his neck. It is so adorable. And then him and Russell get to- or him and Russell were like my favourite thing in the latter seasons of the show. Like, why didn't we get a full season of them? Well remember, one half of that combination is of is Russell. So anything that involves Russell plus yes. is going to be pretty good. Even the worst thing will still have Dennis over here carrying that ship all the way. Yeah, but that also it features him and Steve dancing in a like a frat house where they've killed everyone, and they're slow dancing to "Teenage Dream" by Katy Perry. <laughs> it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> when this when this show gets it right, and its campiness, or its ridiculousness, or even its drama. Sorry, um, in the later seasons, it leans more into the camp, I think. But it still has these really dark moments. I mean, in season seven, this like the the really right wing conservative anti vampire governor of Louisiana essentially sets up prison camps for vampires. Like that's bleak. Um, but here, when we first see Steve, he is basically the minister of this anti vampire church, and him and his wife Sarah are kind of the like the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker of the anti-vampire evangelical movement. They're like Ted and Heidi Cruz. 
Oh my god, you felt that way too. I was watching it. I'm just like, geez, he's kind of like Ted Cruz, but with like a little more charisma. And this is pre-Ted Cruz as well. These people are fucking, you know, psychic. Suki's not psychic. Yeah, she can constantly states that. Um, but yeah, I was just... Um, I mean, I find that interesting because there totally would be, especially in the South, there would totally be an anti-vampire right-wing movement. And it would completely take over politics and it would be a huge part of festering this kind of hate. But trying to get that balance between that and, you know, all of the the fun, sexy, sexy times is quite difficult. Because I think that's one of the problems with the show is that so often the vampires in the show are kind of delighted to be the evil stereotypes that the, the zealots think that they are. But we don't really see a whole lot of them, you know... I mean, I'm not saying, oh, we need to see the other side, because I don't think it really matters what kind of zealot or... Well, not what kind of stereotype you are, you know, rights are rights, at least if you're not a vampire. But that's the thing, is it's so hard to kind of create that analogy when we don't really see a whole lot of vampires just trying to get a job, hang out with friends, get a girlfriend, that kind of thing. Like, I guess even Bill, but Bill still kills, like, straight up kills people (laughs) in the first two episodes. The only one that fits this this description is Eddie. Mm-hmm. Eddie is a creation entirely of the show played by Stephen Root who is wonderful in everything he does this is about the same time he was playing Dwight Dixon a bit before Dwight Dixon on um, Pushing Daisies and he plays this middle aged guy who finally realises he's gay after everyone else has already figured it out including his wife and decides to go out and make up for lost time except he has no idea what to do you know, gay culture is so, especially in his area, is so far removed from his very boring lifestyle. And he's not the most attractive of men in this world. I mean, this world is kind of ridiculous with the amount of hotness coming out of it. And nobody wants him. But as he mentions, but there was this guy even uglier than him who had all these beautiful young men around him because he was a vampire. And then he does become a vampire. He finally finds someone who turned him. And what does he do? Sits around watching TV. Monday nights are the best nights. First there's heroes. Then Lafayette comes around to his house. You know, his life probably hasn't changed too much. I mean, there are elements that work like that. I mean, Alan Ball himself is gay. And I think can write those elements very well. It's just trying to gel it in with the, you know, vampire lives matter stuff that he's trying to go with. Yeah, the problem is, as we've discussed many for much before, vampires are the predator of humankind, and they are so often uh, a metaphor form of sexual violence. I mean, look at in True Blood in the books, um, how closely sex and sex and feeding are intertwined. Like we see it in the show, Bill really, really wants to bite Suki when they're having sex for the first time, and including the biting makes everything so amazing. All of the targets of the Bon Tom Strangler, I suppose, are women who have had sex with vampires and are proud of that fact because it's so amazing. Hustler was saying everyone should have sex with a vampire at least once. And yet when we see the the scene with Jason's ex, is it Maudette, who we see on the video? In the video, she seems to be okay, but like when she talks about it, it's really clear that this has kind of lingered with her in a major way. It's sex that she didn't really say 
no to, but she didn't really say yes to. And after, and the more she thinks about it, and the more time passes, and the more time it has to settle in her, she's like, yeah, I really, really didn't want to do that. She was poor. She 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 was in a, a tough spot. She needed money, and it was, she was offered one thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. And of course, it becomes a you know a thing of gossip and wide-eyed discussion. The idea of these prostitutes that service vampires exclusively. I mean, even Adele Stackhouse gets in on the action. I'm like, do you really want to be discussing this with your grandmother, Jason? She seems cool with it. Like, she seems like a pretty cool woman. In the book, she reads Danielle Steele, so she's pretty cool with it. But it's very, very clearly tied the, the violence of the vampire with the sexual element of it. This is not one of those ones where you can try and maybe steer away from the idea that some uh, vampire stories try to do. It, it's very heavily sexualized in every facet. Oh, everything about this show is steeped in sex. Well, I mean, look at the, um, the, the transformation of Jessica. That is just straight up played as a rape scene. But I feel like this show kind of knew more clearly what it was in that the first couple of seasons and what it became in the same way that I think Charlene Harris really knew what she was writing when she started out I think if there hadn't been a TV series that sh- that series of books would have ended four or five books earlier and it, I don't think it would have been as bitter in its ending I don't know if we want to really go into how the final book ends we won't really I think we won't if you want to read it you know because there's 13 books you, you go enjoy yourself but that ending is steeped in like simmering resentment towards not just yeah it's it's pure like you know how in the book of hannibal where thomas harris was like oh so you guys are there are people who ship hannibal and clarice well i'm gonna show you what that shit would be fucking like and it's kind of like that but it's much more i mean it goes on longer because it's 13 books and it's really clear that a lot of that was defined by someone at hbo going you know charlene we know that you're thinking of going in this direction could you maybe not because people really like these people, and we really don't. Want, we don't necessarily need to yeah. be in canon with what the show is doing because they wildly diverge. But you know, keep give people a reason to keep reading. Give them the reason they want to keep reading. Which, yeah, I mean, I understand as a creator that must be very difficult, and I don't think it's the job of readers or fans or anyone really to tell a writer you have to write this. This is the wrong way that you have written it. But the way that the series ends is so bitter. Like, it's nasty, I think. So, as you said, the True Blood books, well, the Suki, the Southern Vampire Mystery books are 13 books in total. Before then, her longest series was the Aurora Tea Gun books, which was eight books. Lily Bard was five. Those are the, the Shakespeare's Landlord, Shakespeare's Champion, Shakespeare's Christmas series. And the Harper Connolly books, which were being written sort of about in the middle period of the Sookie Sackhouse books, the Southern Vampire Mystery books, is four. Now, there is a ninth uh, Aurora Tea Garden book out now. I'm not sure why another one has come out. Um, might be because there is an Aurora Tea Garden TV series. You know, each movie-length episode is a book. Maybe just because she felt like going back to the Aurora Tea Garden books, which makes sense. It's it's a series that it's, it's a cozy mystery series. Doesn't have to be too dramatic, and to bring out another murder mystery as opposed to the the, the massive 
and continually growing world of the Southern Vampire Mysteries. Especially towards the end, the mystery part of the series sort of went on the wayside. And I think that's also one of the things that made the later ones come across as more unhappy. Because sort of at heart, Charlene Harris is a mystery writer. She loves her mysteries. Like even in Dead Until Dark, for example, the mystery while tied to vampires is not about a, a murderous vampire. You could take out the vampires and come up with a slightly different reason for Rene to kill these women. You know, he could have been targeting women who have sex with women or women who have sex with black men. Or sex or, workers. I mean, that's another common one. The women who are debasing themselves sexually in one specific manner as triggered by his sister. You know, that would have been any other mystery novel. But the vampire element adds something different. It was just her doing a different take on a mystery story. And the later ones where the, the mysteries get more difficult, not in the sense that they're hard to solve, but to get into it, the world got too big. There were too many characters. The series went way much, went on way longer than what she wanted. Oh yeah, I mean, it reeks of it. <laughs> like, I read Midnight Crossroad, which does take place in the same universe, but it feels so much happier. Well, they've been turned into an NBC series as well. But I think it's just staying as a trilogy. It's born, born out of the um, both the, the, the Suki Stackhouse books and the Harper Connolly books. But the emphasis is back on the mystery. It's more small town, smaller emphasis. There's no major travel. And it feels like she's in a better place. Some authors can really hide how they feel about books or storylines or what they're putting into it. Charlene Harris is not one of them. Which is good, because I, I mean, I like it when you can feel the love or the excitement or the whatever that you, the author is feeling. But, of course, the contrast, the, the flip side is you end up with something like the later books in the Suki Stackhouse saga. Well, I think by the end of the series, it stopped being the, you know, Southern Vampire Mysteries. So, um, yeah, I can understand that. And, you know, and also, like, screw all the people who sent her death threats for the way that series ended. Like, take your anger to your Tumblr. <laughs> Don't lash it at the offer like that. Otherwise, John Green will yell at us. Oh, God, we wouldn't want that, would we? But, um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a whole separate issue. But I think the TV show is kind of responsible for that, in a sense. Because in the book, when we first meet Eric... I mean, he's pretty clearly defined in villainous terms, at least more so than he is in the series. I mean, we assume he's a villain in the series because he's got that hair. <laughs> and also he's running a vampire club. Where, you know, like, I mean, it's mostly the hair, though. And in the book, you know, he's really, like, kind of close to forcing himself on Suki and basically saying, I'm going to have you. There's still something really seductive and powerful about him. Well, because he's the most powerful vampire in the room. He's still cast as, he's the guy you should not be talking to. Yes. I don't care how good looking or how interesting he sounds. Just everything about you is saying stay away. But he is Alexander Skarsgård. But that's the thing is, if he wasn't played by Alexander Skarsgård, if he was played by just like some Swedish dude named Chris, who was cute but not like spectacular, would it be the same thing? Because remember, there was a period where, like, Alexander Skarsgård was the internet's boyfriend, and I feel like we should go back to those days. 
Like, none of this Cumberbatch shit. <laughs> Let's go back to Sweden, okay? Okay, so, remember in the books, in Dead to the World, there is the whole thing where she sees um, Eric's butt, and it's like the greatest butt in the history of butts. If there was a prize for the best butt, it would have won a big, big trophy. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I'm actually being 100% serious. This is like, what's in it? You can tell I've read Dead to the World several times. In the shower, she's like, but she's she's the Tina Belcher. Butts, 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 butts. Oh my god, Tina Belcher would have loved. Tina Belcher would have written so much friend fiction about true plots. Butts, 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 butts. <laughs> but that's the thing is, like Eric is clearly more set up in antagonistic terms here. There is like I hadn't. How many books were out by the time True Blood started? What year did True Blood come out? 2008. So, one of my favorite sites at the moment, by the way, is orderofbooks.com. <laughs> it lists books by authors. And this is a site I'm on now, but I've used it before. So, 2008. So, this was around the time, and assuming they were prepping maybe the year before, this was Altogether Dead was 2007, Dead to Worse, uh, 2008. Those were the ones where Eric has definitely moved into love interest territory. But whether he was meant to be part of the final contest, as, as it were, don't know whether that would happen. Yeah, by From Dead to Worse, which comes out the same year, uh, she has a boyfriend, but it's Quinn, who's the were-tiger. Mr. Clean. Because, yeah, we get the werewolves in this. Well, we have them in the first season. We have shapeshifters as a dog, because obviously... Um, is Eric in this book? Let's just, I'm just going to search Eric. What, what, what were you talking about from Dead to Worse? Suki has, Suki is by the time Suki has a blood bond with Eric, so clearly she is renewing. Yeah, which he tricks her into. So they do get a romantic relationship of sorts, but like the, the romantic and abusive lines of that relationship have always been really squirrely. Which was very deliberate on... All, all of the vampire relationships yeah, I mean they do set up they do set up Belmore as being like the kind of the southern gentleman, which doesn't entirely work. Except he's as dark as fuck too. Yeah, uh, and also Bill's a dick. I never liked Bill. Like I understand that Stephen Moyer and Anna Paquin are very happy together now, and they've always had good chemistry. But oh my god, Bill was a dick. I mean, Altogether Dead has the moment where Suki realises that she's always going to be under Eric's control. And it's not positioned as something romantic. It's obviously a genuinely horrific thing. Like, even if this was somebody you really cared about, there still needs to be a boundary. And the, the, the um, dynamics of power will never be equal. You know, Suki is powerful on her own. But there's a total difference between being a one-eighth fairy telepathic cocktail waitress in her 20s and being a thousand-year-old vampire. Who, even without being a vampire, was still a frickin' Viking warrior. So, like, if you look at it in that context, there is cl- something of a setup for Eric being gotten rid of the way that he is in the final book, which still fucking sucks. I have no problem with Eric being got rid of, but the manner of it was the what was disturbing. But we'll stop discussing the unjust fate of Eric. Yeah, <laughs> and go back to. Book one. That's true. I mean, I think it's important to set up just in terms of what comes because it shows the way in which canon so hugely diverted from 
the source material. And also, you know, there's a point where offer intent doesn't mean jack shit. <laughs> um, so in terms of this, the first season, I think it is more closely aligned with the intent and tone of Harris's work, at least at that stage. But, I mean, you've got, you've got to go where the fans are. That's the thing, is... I think this is kind of a way for fans to have their cake and eat it too. So for those who aren't keen on the way that the series is going in the books with how Eric is treated, you have this TV show and you have this very attractive six foot four Swedish actor who doesn't seem to enjoy wearing clothes. So that is there for you. And I think it was very clear that Alan Ball knew that. Otherwise, why would Eric have become the kind of player in this series that he did? And, and more of a like clearly romantic figure. And also, I think Suki pushes back a little more. I mean, besides, Alexander Skarsgård is a fucking professional. No sock for him. Oh no, he's he's gonna go all out. If you have not seen the interview that he gave with Conan O'Brien, where he talks about growing up in a family like of Bohemians who never wore clothes and how he was fourteen the first time he saw his dad wearing trousers, like you will understand him a lot. I wonder when he saw Thor two, was like ah, family memories. <laughs> I don't forget bothered him. He's just like, eh. Also, just the bit in season two where she comes down and he's like naked. I wonder if they told Anna Paquin that he was not going to be wearing a sock. <laughs> I wonder if that that startled expression is, is enforced method acting. I mean, by this point in time, Anna Paquin was already in a relationship with Stephen Moyer. So, yeah, how awkward does that sort of stuff get? Well, they're okay. They're still together. They're very cute on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Anna Paquin's Twitter is great. She no. just does not give a fuck. And she occasionally <laughs> starts fights with Piers Morgan, which is awesome. Sounds a bit right. Uh, I'll just take a quick diversion just to point out that... Remember when um, they were doing that big ad where everyone was saying, I'm gay, I'm straight, and then Anna Paquin was like, I'm bisexual? And everyone was like, what the... Yay! <laughs> because up until then, they'd only seen her in relationships with men. They're like, oh, so you're, are you straight now? And she's like, no, I'm bisexual. I think in the wake of recent douchebaggery, uh, I'd just like to say this is a perfect example of just because you're dating a person of X gender or Y gender or Z gender or whatever doesn't make you straight or gay or whatever you are still bisexual regardless to who you are or are not dating. You are still bisexual if you're dating a man, still bisexual if you're dating a woman, still bisexual if you're dating a someone who is non-binary. You are still bisexual if you are a 50-year-old virgin. I mean, this show does kind of do bisexuality. I mean, there is just an element of, like, sexuality is fluid anyway, especially for vampires. It's kind of the, the Anne Rice rule. Like, we'll just fuck anyone. I've been around 400 years. Why don't I give it a shot? <laughs> yeah, like, Skarsgård doesn't give a fuck. I know his character has a name. We're just going to keep calling him Skarsgård. Eric Hotman. I'm still really sad that the Jason Eric scene is <laughs> was a dream. And the, the, the Sam build. They just, like, you know what the, the audience would love? Hotman on Vampman action. I mean, also, Rob Kaczynski turns up for a later episode and does the same thing. Rob Kaczynski! <laughs> it's like all our favourites. It's great. <laughs> but it's like this show was made for us. Oh, yeah. 
even Tara gets to let her hair down later on. <laughs> Remember last episode, not including our special um, April Fool's episode, we did American Vampire and how there was the complete neglecting of any indigenous American vampires. Mm-hmm. Well, we get a Native American vampire in Southern Vampire Mysteries slash True Blood. His name is Long Shadow, and he's a bartender. He is kind of attractive. I don't think there's much emphasis being put on him being attractive beyond that he's a vampire attractive man, because vampires. And he's also an idiot who lets his pride get to him. Rather than ask for help, he decides to steal money, which gets him staked. Goodbye, first and last Native American vampire we have seen on this podcast. Yeah, there are things that the show does well, and then there are other things. <laughs> and then there's Eddie. We've mentioned Eddie. Eddie just wanted to watch Heroes and have sex with Lafayette. And while we may disagree on the Heroes part, I think we all agree that Lafayette is one. In fairness, this is around the time that it's only the first season or so. You know, the first season of Heroes is great. He doesn't know true, how bad it was going He's a vampire. He's not psychic. Well, I suppose then it's a good thing that he didn't get to see the, the what happened to the next season of Heroes. <laughs> It was a mercy, really, wasn't it? But there's our gay character who dies. We talked about how Lafayette barely survives his offing in the book as another gay character, a gay character of colour. While the show does have more diverse characters than a lot of other shows do or would, unfortunately those characters, like in a lot of places, have a higher rate of mortality than their white cishet counterparts. Sexy white vampire shows up. Is he straight? He's safe. That is kind of the big problem, is it? And you see this with a lot of stuff, especially in the genre, like, or genre fiction in general, which is, we're not setting them up as cannon fodder entirely, but you're still going to be safer if you are straight, white, and usually male. You make your core cast, and they tend to be straight, white, pretty. Also start to fill out the ranks around them. That's when they bring in the diversity. But these characters often are in the um, the sweet spot of character development. They're interesting and developed enough that the audience will feel sad when they die. And the author does not think about how absolutely racist or homophobic this is. I feel like if the series was published, like the first book was published, even only a couple of series later, uh, years later, when, like, forum discussions and such became a much bigger part of the conversation, maybe there would have been a greater, you know... The conversation would have been there more, I think. Not to say that it wasn't there originally, but, you know, nowadays it's almost impossible to imagine a major series with this kind of popularity not having... Like, you and me on Tumblr going hashtag problematic. That's why I'm really hoping that there'll be another vampire resurgence soon. Just because we might see stories that will hopefully see stories that are more properly inclusive rather than problematically inclusive. Or at least more criticism and discussion of these sorts of works. It's not enough to include a gay man. He needs to survive to the end more, more often than he does not. And just because the TV show was 
had a gay man as a showrunner doesn't mean that it was obviously immune to killing off all the gay characters. Sure, Lafayette survived, but they created Eddie solely to die. Several other queer characters die. Just because you're marginalised on one axis doesn't mean you're marginalised on others. For example, we talk about um, white feminism and white uh, activism and things like that, forgetting the women of colour, men of colour, people of colour, or the other axes that cross over, like disability or mental health. But I think that's also like, there must have been a conversation going on when these books first came out, is like, this is Louisiana. Like, because Charlene Harris is a southern woman, isn't she? She would have known that this would be kind of a problem that some backwards shit-kicking bar in Bon Ton, Louisiana, where, you know, like the swamps of the state would not be an exclusively white domain. So to give you an idea of how Southern she is, uh, Charlene Harris was, quote, born and raised in the Mississippi River Delta area. Uh, She currently lives in Southern Arkansas and uh, she attended Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. But one of the things that's really interesting about the series, at least certainly the TV show, is there is this element of kind of playing with the expectations of the southern charm and the old, you know, good old boy southern gentleman. Because Bill isn't just a vampire; he's a you know veteran of the Civil War. And this gets this makes Suki really excited because her grandmother is basically the typical kind of southern women, or at least the stereotype we have, who's really interested in the the civil war. And her and her friends get together and discuss it and the history of it and their own, you know, ancestors who are involved in stuff. And when like the, one of the first things she asks about you know, Suki when she says, oh, I've met a vampire, is, do you think he was alive during the war? Do you think he'd come talk to us? Well, like, hold her meeting at night and everything. So when she asks him, like, at first he's not really susceptible to it because his response is really... You know war is hell, right? You know that it was a really shitty time to watch all of these people die for this <laughs> horrible cause. And it's like, oh, well, I'll be nicer of talking about it to your grandmother if it makes you happy. And then he kind of gives them the version of the war they want to hear. Yeah, the, the war of northern aggression and the war of southern independence. States rights, that kind of thing. Yeah, he, when he was like, it was a war when they sent the young poor men off to die so that rich men could stay rich. But that's not romantic. And then they'll ask him, did you own slaves or did you have slaves? And he talks about the slaves that his father owned or whatever, or that this, um, the stackhouses owned. And I'm kind of glad they put um, Tara in, in that sequence in the show just to voice the what the fuck that the audience were probably having. And people wonder why Tara's angry. Like, some t- a lot of the time her aggression is... She's a black woman named after a plantation. Yes, there is that as well. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad somebody pointed that out to the writing team. I like to think that it was Rutina Wesley. If, you've, if you're familiar with Hannibal, you finally get to see Rutina Wesley doing a role that, like, she, that, you know, justifies her talent. <laughs> She's so damn good in Hannibal. But that's kind of the thing as well, is that... I think that element of the show is actually quite interesting, that it does play around with this, you know, this the, the, the idea that, that, like, a lot of people in the South, particularly the same people who are pushing the anti-vampire legislation and crime and religious element, are exactly the kind of people who want to push the image of, like, 
oh, things were great back in the days of Tara and, you know, men were men and women were genteel and polite, that kind of thing. And the dead stayed dead. Yes, and the dead stayed dead. I don't know if you've ever seen Django Unchained, but I think that that film does a really amazing takedown of the kind of, you know, the image of the genteel sovereign gentleman because, you know, that sovereign gentleman is also a violent, sadistic slave owner. You know, he screws around these people, he harms them, but he comes close to, you know, he's killing people, but he still wants to shake your hand and be a gentleman about it. So that's one of the reasons I love what happens to Steve in the later seasons, because there's a man who is in for a penny and for a pound in everything he does. If he's human, he's going to be the biggest anti-vampire zealot there is. He's a vampire now, he's going to be the happiest gay vampire ever. And he is the main antagonist of the second season. When he finds himself an identity, he is the identity. Yeah, and he is really the main baddie of the second season, him and um, him and his wife. And the wife, I think, is end up ends up being kind of more antagonistic than he does, actually. She's really into it. She's not hiding anything. Her, her fate is pretty horrific in the series, actually. Well, we saw it with the senator that was sleeping with Lafayette and getting drugs off him. Well, he's sleeping with Lafayette and drinking vampire blood. Well... Guess who's uh, an anti-gay rights and anti-vampire rights kind of senator? Of course. You know, you're just thinking one day that guy's going to be caught in an airport bathroom with a vampire boy. Oh, yeah. Also, another interesting element is uh, one of the other elements that we get a very specific way that a lot of these humans sabotage vampires and really kind of go after them. Um some of them, some of these humans let the vampires feed on them and they're infected with a form of hepatitis that only hurts vampires. Yep, so it's called Hep V. Is it Hep V? Or hep v? It is the ultimate revenge fuck. Yep, so Hep, hep V. Yeah. In the books, it's called Sinoids. Oh, look, there's another dead gay guy, Jerry, and his partner. And then uh, at least a into Jerry male vampire, also dead. And a black woman and some other dude we don't care about. Yeah, the vampires get torched. I do appreciate the the cleverness of finding a song called Fourth Man in the Fire for that episode. That was all about the identity of who of the fourth body. Also, did you notice the two glee actors in this um season? Um No which ones. Okay, so there's Chow, who in the books was an incredibly attractive Asian man. I was kind of imagining Daniel Dyke Kim as a vampire. But in the TV show, is played by Patrick Gallagher, the the gym coach in uh, Glee, and the the fang banger um, coroner, who was created to replace the teenage vampire in the books who died in the fire, is Kevin McHale, aka Artie, aka the guy in the wheelchair, played by an actor who does not use a wheelchair. Stop trying to make me give a crap about <laughs> Glee. <laughs> I don't care about Glee either. I just, I just thought it was funny that this was about the same time and both of them end up in the, in the show. Like I pointing out, there's another, you know, Home and Away alum somewhere. Are they Australian? So, it, they are from Neighbours of Home and Away. Isn't that the rule? New Zealand, it's Shortland Street. We only have one. Actually, it, it's, it's Shortland Street and Peter Jackson. See, Carl Urban, who played... Um, Irma in Lord of the Rings and was a gay paramedic on Shortland Street who defied all stereotypes by having absolutely no taste in clothes. 
But I think that's what the new stereotype is going to be for New Zealand actors, is where are they in a Taika Waititi production? <laughs> Him and Peter are just going to save you all, aren't they? Mm-hmm. We have to wait around for Outlander season three. <laughs> also, I'm assuming that everyone who listens to our show has seen the trailer for Far Ragnarok, but it is awesome. Okay, I'm curious as a as an actual as an actual New Zealander, how do you feel about Anna Paquin's accent in this? Better than X Men. Honestly, I have no real opinion on Southern accent. Honestly, I'm surprised that we got this long into the show without going, Bell Circuit! <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, here in New Zealand, our version of a southern accent, like, in the, the most southern part of the country, is Scottish. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I knew a girl who, like, when I went to university, I went to a university down in Otago, in Dunedin, which is the Edinburgh of the South. So lots of Scottish stuff around there. And she and her twin sister had, had been raised in the area or outside Invercargill and had not gone any further than Dunedin. Her going to university was the furthest she'd ever gone in her life. She sounded so Scottish it makes you sound not Scottish at all. <laughs> so accents are weird things. Honestly, I can't tell you which one is the best, whether it's Anna Paquin's or Ryan Quantin's or Stephen Moyer's. So many non-Americans. Yeah, like the, the central three are are not American. Sam is American. Tara and Lafayette are American. They both went to Juilliard together. Yeah, these are proper fucking trained actors. <laughs> okay, so I just googled I just googled Anna Paquin. And like the seven for eight headline on the first page is bisexual Anna Paquin and Stephen Moyer marry. <laughs> Like, look, look at the Daily Mail stirring up shit there. Okay, bisexual Anna Paquin and Stephen Moyer. Could that possibly mean that Stephen Moyer is also bisexual by the way that the sentence is phrased? I think that's just bad grammar, to be honest. I like that they're still together. Like, she mm-hmm. almost makes me like Bill, just because clearly those two have chemistry. I-, I always do wonder how awkward is it for people who are married and working on a set to also watch, have to deal with having sex scenes with other people. Well, I know that Stephen Moyer has directed episodes of the show, like some of the later episodes, and apparently he just enjoyed having, you know, like fucking around with Alexander Skarsgård. Have <laughs> you ever seen the very funny gif where Alexander Skarsgård just sort of slides out the room and the door opens? <laughs> That's a Stephen Moyer directed episode. <laughs> Honestly, all of these sex scenes just must have been so awkward, especially just Brian Quantin's constant nakedness. I mean, some of the sex scenes aren't quite as terrible. I mean, like, Tara gets to keep her bra on all the time. So I guess they didn't quite enforce that much nudity if you really didn't want to. That or they have some issue with black lady boobs. I mean, do you not remember the infamous Rolling Stone cover? Who? The True Blood one with the three of them naked and covered in blood. Oh, yeah. Oh, naked and covered in blood. Yeah. There's at least some moments where it's not entirely naked. And then... Like the three sex scenes at the end after Adele Stackhouse's funeral. Sam and Tara, um, Bill and Sookie, and then uh, Jason and Randy Sue. How awkward is that Randy Sue one where he's like, just his, his brain is completely shut off. He's like, he's lost it. Like, it's his version of the naked party and Tony Erdman. And she's just on top of, like, how awkward is some of the stuff? 
Like, is it like hazard pay? Except it's like having a guy shove his head near your crotch pay? I mean, it's HBO. I feel like it's just part of the, you know, it's just expected. I will say, also good on them for like the first major sex scene to be all about a dude giving a woman oral sex. Yeah, we're still kind of short of that on air, aren't we? But you know, for all his faults, Jason at least gives as well as takes. <laughs> He's got that going for him at least, so at least one head is better than the other head. Yeah, we were having a discussion. I asked, which is stupider, the brain in his head or the brain in his pants? And I think we decided that the brain in his head was stupider. Because his pants may have only one focus, but it seems to at least do that well. Whereas... Whenever Jason tries to think, bad things happen. <laughs> Just don't think. There is a moment in the second episode where um, the um, he's been arrested for um, a- accused of murdering uh, Maudette Pickens because there's a tape of them having very rough sex and then he leaves thinking he's killed her but turns out he hasn't. Um, and one of the officers says, you know, well, maybe you removed the other tape in order to, you know, throw the scent off yourself. And he goes, I'm not that smart. <laughs> And the thing is, you could just... Oh, what's his face? Um, Sheriff. Whatever his name. Just, you could just see him go, yeah, dumbass has a point. <laughs> There's just a sort of shrug of, yeah, kudos. <laughs> so I think we should talk about the main actual mystery in this book and series, season. Is the, the serial killing of women who have had sexual um, intercourse with vampires. Or at least are perceived to have been having inappropriate relations, shall we say. It is, um, I think the big problem with the central mystery is that, one, it relies on a lot of dead women. Two, it's positioned as a sort of hate-revenge crime. And three, that that crime is rooted in sex. And, and also the element of sex work, because Maudette Pickens was paid to have sex with the vampire, and that means that People, you know, like she's positioned as like the worst whore of all the whores for doing that. Even though it's clear that this is an incident that really fucked with her, like really traumatized her. In the book, there are at least two other victims besides Mordet, Dawn, Amy, and uh, Cindy. In the books, Amy is very much a last-minute thought. Like she's she's she dies right at the end. She's not even seen on screen. So the creation of the character in the TV series is. Basically, what you would call in um, what we used to see in um, fan fiction and role-playing game circle, original canon character. Basically, a character who was pretty much just a name that you could that was still fitting into the universe that you could then build a character onto. If you are familiar with Harry Potter, Blaze Beanie, Blaze Beanie the girl, Blaze Beanie the emo white Italian dude, but not Blaze Beanie, attractive, attractive, attractive black man. I mean, I missed out on all the fan wang for Harry Potter, but, you know, reading up on it in the, in the future was very fun. But in terms of what happens in True Blood, I mean, for something that is... The show is inextricably tied to sex. Both, you know, fun sex and sex as a crime, sex as abuse, sex as a weapon. Uh... Also, as is mentioned in, in the book as well, Suki was, was sexually abused as a child by her uncle. She has to explain the term funny uncle to Bill as well. Um, and, you know, Charlene Harris herself is a rape survivor. 
and this is something that she's written about a lot. So you know, when you read, you know, death, whether you're into you know death of the offer or not, but when you read that series, and you get to the to all the way that this stuff is handled, the way that you know the abuse of power and the complete misbalance of those power dynamics in relationships, be they physical, mental, or sexual. I mean, the message is really clear, which is, I think, is one of the reasons that maybe um, Harris got really, like, kind of aggrieved that Eric became the sort of number one sex symbol that everyone loved, because in the books, he's not a good guy at all. He's the Draco Malfoy of the books, except... He's buffer and more Swedish. Like, if you've read the Lily Bard series, that's definitely, that is about a rape survivor and the darkness that followed her after her, her rape, so... That's another one of Charlene Harris's work. So, if you liked the Suki Stackhouse books and you haven't read her other stuff, especially her pre-True Blood stuff, give it a give it a check out. The 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 Southern Cozy Mysteries. Lily Bar the Lily Bar books are much darker. But the, but... I think all our books are quite dark. I mean, the thing that's really fascinating about um, Southern Vampire Mysteries. I mean, if you look at their covers, their covers have always been really cutesy. I actually really like the stylized covers. I like them too, but I don't think that the, the mystery here is really necessarily cutesy. Like, cutesy mysteries, cozy mysteries tend to be more like, uh-oh, old Maudette down in the barn had a bucket of chicken fall on her head and now she's dead and we have to figure out with a plucky snow globe salesman who committed the crime. <laughs> and like, here it's, it's, you know, it's sex crimes and, you know, really graphic murder and a society of people versus vampires that is rooted in violence and fear of death. Like, it's much darker than that. Suki herself is a very kind of cosy mystery style heroine, but she's still one who is rooted in, you know, really bad experiences and trauma and this condition that plagues her. The mystery itself, who's our killer? A guy who began his thing killing his sister for sleeping with a vampire but he killed Cindy, his sister, because she was sleeping with a vampire. And he lost it, and he, he raped her corpse. Because, hey, if a dead guy was good enough for her, if she didn't mind spreading her legs for a dead guy, surely her own brother. I think something kind of broke in him. But you can sort of see his misogyny and his Madonna whore complex both in the show and in the books. You saw the bit where the, the guys are getting a bit too gropey with Suki, and he, he goes kind of bonkers on them grabs their arms really threatens them he sees Suki Stackhouse as much like his little sister before before she turned to the vampire and when she he sees her hanging out with Bill with bite marks you can see that rage that thing coming up again not just because she was a woman having sex with vampires like uh, Mordette and Dawn and later Amy Burley but someone he knew, someone he was kind of, he, he, he was acquainted with, someone he did see like his sister. And when he watches his sister fall down that ladder again, because you can see the rage when he killed Adele, the, the rage when he killed Tina. Tina is the cat. For a cozy mystery, it's very dark. Some of um, Charlene Harris's work is like, uh, so Real Murders, the first of the Aurora Tea Garden book, is about a group of um, murder files who meet every week or so, and they discuss murder. This is the kind of club that you and I would be in. Oh yeah, we would serve the best snacks at that meeting. Except somebody has turned out to murder one of their own members. It's that sort of cozy mystery and not 
someone's killing a whole bunch of women who've been having sex with vampires. I mean, that's the first step towards abusing or killing someone is you completely rob them of their humanity. And one of the reasons Irene finds that so easy is because, well, you're not, you know, if you're okay with fucking dead people, then, you know, you're as good as dead to me anyway. Can I just say there's two things about Renee and his following of Jason Stackhouse. One, just the horror of him sneaking in, and you see it in the show, him sneaking in with Jason and Amy and killing Amy while Jason lies next to her. Just horrifying. And then there's just the complete, the kind of hilarious mental image of him, because he waits until he's left, Jason's left the woman he's sleeping with, so he's got sort of a, a suspect just in case. I'm just imagining him sitting outside the window listening to them having sex and having sex and having sex and just looking at this watch and waiting for wondering when it's going to end so he can get to his work I have a dark sense of humour sometimes, I just thought it was kind of funny, just like, considering the, the marathons he seems to have in the show like, just, Renee's like oh damn, it, I've, got, I've got a date with Arlene <laughs> in a bit, or whatever <laughs> Yeah, there does seem to be a sense that, like, this is the one thing that Jason is good at. But going back, we, it's once again, you know, the disposable woman, the disposable sex worker, the woman as the, as the victim. In this case, they're not the victim of the vampires, but still, they're tied to the vampires, therefore they died. You know, you lie with death, you, you die, basically. They lay with death, they just help them along, right? We we shouldn't end this episode on a downer. We need to. Can we talk about Hoyt? Which one's Hoyt again? <laughs> Hoyt is the sweetie, the one with the mother. You know, the, the one where everyone was talking about how slutty Dawn was, and he was sitting there thinking she had the nicest eyes and the nicest smile, and she was always so nice to him. And Suki, after hearing everyone think horrible things about Dawn all day, is just like, oh Hoyt. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. The tall, the really tall guy. <laughs> I don't know if there's a more southern name on the planet than Hoyt Mortonberry. And the, but he's so delighted at the idea of bringing home a vampire to mother just to piss off Maxine. He's basically like the giant cinnamon roll of the show. I mean, if you haven't seen the show before, and I assume if you're listening to our show, you have at least watched some of True Blood. But it's definitely worth a, a revisit if you already have. Especially that first season where it has really the tightest control over its tone and its intent. It doesn't always work because it is such a kind of borderline nonsense central allegory that they're going for. But there's so much there to enjoy, particularly... I love the mood of the piece. I love certain character interactions. I really like... I mean, the elements of the, like, you know, God hates Fang stuff that they set up is really fascinating, especially the religious aspect. Um, I really like Sam, the scruffy mongrel bar owner. I really love Tara. Uh, I love the theme music and opening credits, which are gorgeous. We forgot about Pam. I, I love Pam. I think Pam is great. Um, Pam is really, I think, the one character in the show who stays consistently strong. Like, I think they use her properly. Yeah. She's a bit different from the the book. She's much younger in the books. Um, 
but they still, you know, the idea of the the, the beautiful milkmaid wearing her pink and her, you know, you know, Alice in Wonderland gone soccer mom. You know, the, the black is the black and the leather is very much her job uniform. But I love that in the show that she is an older vampire as well. I mean, like as a as a human, like as a human, she's. You know, I, I love that we have older vampires. I mean, we've got Eddie and, well, Chow's not exactly young. We'll get Russell soon. <laughs> Eric's not, not the youngest either. Russell. We'll, we've got um, Stabler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Christopher Maloney. Um, and we've got um, the other woman on the council, the, um, you know, the, what you'd imagine the older middle-aged southern woman to be. We've got Maxine. I mean, I think that's something that the show actually does quite We have well. old lady vampires. If this was Twilight, everybody would be between the ages of 17 and 25, which they are. I think the oldest, the oldest vampire in the Cullens was Esme at 26. 20 freaking six. And she was considered old. I think that's something that the show does really well. I mean... But I also think that's just a case of we want really good actors for these roles. We don't want the CW set, no offence. I mean, this is a show, like, the first season's got Jelko Ivanek in it, who's one of the great character actors of modern TV. I mean, the fact that they get Dennis O'Hare as well is pretty badass. Before Ryan Murphy got his mitts on him. Wait, who are you talking about? Uh, Ivanek is, um... The first guy you're talking about. What's his name? Jelko Z-H-E... <laughs> Um, LKO. But I remember he won an Emmy for I think it was Damages, and the guy who had to read out his name was having like a. Hang on a second, let me let me take my time here. He's Slovenian. Is he the Magister? Yes, the Magister. But he's on everything. There's a lot of that guy in this thing. Ryan Quantum was in an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit because everyone was in freaking Law and Order, Law and Order, as we know. Dennis O'Hare was in Lord and Order. So was the Magister. He was on Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, because everybody was on oh, on IMDb. Favorite True Blood male character uses picture of Eric. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's one of the elements that, that's very interesting. Um, so, you know, watch the show for that. I mean, if, even if all you do is watch the first season, I would recommend you watch the first two at least. I mean, free because you want to get to Russell. If you stop after that, no one will blame you. <laughs> well, four season four gives you a whole lot of naked romantic Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, you can always Google that. I mean, it takes up all season six to get full frontal. <laughs> and now everyone's gone to Google Good, that. Go enjoy yourself. So the the TV show gave more character development to characters who were in minor side roles. Like, I mean, Arlene Fowler is pretty much who she was in the show, played by the wonderful Carrie Preston. But Perry Belfleur has a much larger role in the TV show. He has his own story arcs later. It's kind of rare to see. I mean, okay, sometimes his PTSD is and everything is played for humor. But he's, you know, he's smart. He's sweet. He's romantic. He's, he's. But he's just got his issues. Because he is a well in the books. I believe he was almost was the age. He was a bit older. I think he was a Vietnam vet. Here he's an Iraq vet. So, I guess the time has come, the war I said, to 
It is the worst, isn't it? To talk of many things. Uh, so obviously, things that we liked, things that we didn't. So we recommend it. Hell yeah. It's definitely a major milestone in modern vampire everything. Um, both the books and the um, the TV show. Uh, TV show is great if you are okay with watching a lot of naked people grind up against each other. A lot of attractive naked men. Well, nearly naked men. Later seasons only add more. Um, I wonder if um, this was all the, the naked practice that what's his name used for Magic Mike? <laughs> you know, if you're comfortable enough to be on True Blood, you can get naked anywhere. If you have not read the books but have watched the TV show, read the books. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Like, Suki has a bit more independence in some respects. Like, Bill's attempt at rescue at the end of the season was kind of stupid. In the movie, in the book, sorry, Suki has to handle everything alone because Bill is actually gone. Rather than him going, Suki! <laughs> I mean, there's a lot... Enjoy the accent fun. I feel like you should... Even if you're, you know, if you've seen it or you haven't seen it, at least watch the first season to see the show at its most controlled. I mean, I think controlled is the wrong word, but like when it has the tightest grasp over its tone, its style, and its plotting. Before it was just like, fuck it, orgy! It's also probably the closest to the books the show ever gets. Like, it, it, it expands on a lot. But it's more, a lot of it is giving points of view to the stuff that Suki missed because the books are told in first person. Like just the Jason escapades and what the vampires get up to and things like that. The TV show also cuts out a lot of interesting things like Bubba. If you've not read the books, you have no idea who Bubba is. He is. Who is he? He's the man from Memphis, isn't he? He's a certain familiar figure from that, that region, yes. Someone who did not come over because he was so drugged up. He likes cats. Not in the same way that most people like cats, though. And he gives Rene the shock of his life, eh? Only one or two people in town meet him. And it's Rene of all people who meets this, this very famous vampire that, you know, Rene's probably been a fan of ever since he was a wee fellow. He's just kind of like, my, 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 my dear hatred of vampires and women is shattered. I mean, what, give it a shit go. Like, come spam us with Eric gifts on Twitter. We really won't complain. We'll occasionally spam back with other characters. I'm sure we have a few good Rob Kaczynski gifts. If not, when Daylight Savings... Changes again, I'll be posting the famous video that I do every time the clocks go back. You know the one, Kaylee. Oh, yeah. But come on, Justin, come and uh, get in touch with us and, <laughs> you know, enjoy yourself. It's, it's, if you like mysteries, um, if you like vampires, if you like... They're not hard books to read. You know, you can, can plough through them pretty easily. I think I read... Uh, as you said, it was before the TV show came out, so I think I read one, two, three. Uh, I think everything up to All Together Dead may, um, in the space of a weekend when I first read them. I did not sleep much that weekend. And when I did, I dreamt about vampires. Surprise. <laughs> but they're definitely something you could binge on. 
the early ones at least. The later ones, uh, I don't know. Oh yeah, very bingeable. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't read, if you've read the Suki Stackhouse books, but have not read Charlene Harris's other books, go give those a read as well, because you'll find much the same that you like. Read, read the books that she clearly actually wanted to read. Right. <laughs> you'll, you'll feel a different, because. The, the early books, especially, got respect and awards and interest for a reason. You know, okay, so the clothing choices of every character may be terrible. Like, seriously, there is no fashion sense in any of these books. Like, remember, what what's her name? The, uh, the, the female vampire of the Monroe Nest? She's described as wearing, like, a green latex outfit. <laughs> a green spandex outfit and it's like what but that's consistent across all of Charlene Harris's books fashion not her strength mystery she's pretty good at putting the, the people solving the mysteries in good clothes no so that is one big improvement on the um, books Suki has a lot of nice outfits she does have some cute dresses and I do appreciate, as I, as I thought, watching the scene where she was running away from Renee slash Drew, um, that as ridiculous as the little shorts that Sam has the girls wear at, Mer at Merlot's, he at least makes sure they wear pretty sensible shoes. Because <laughs> if she'd been wearing heels that a lot of other places would have made her wear, she'd be pretty dead. How is it that we go for a really simple wrap-up of this episode and we're just still going on tangents? <laughs> and we're talking about shoes, yeah. Okay, anything else you'd like to say? I mean, if all you want to watch the show for is naked Skarsgård, like, go for it. It will be worth your time. But he's naked in pretty much everything. <laughs> we understand that a lot of people have kind of lost their love of Skarsgård after lies. This will bring it back. We're about as well done as Bill in the sunlight. <laughs> okay, one last detail. I'm not sure why they changed this for the TV show. In the books, his middle name is Erasmus. But in the show, they gave him the name Thomas. The middle name Thomas. He went from William Erasmus Compton to William Thomas uh -huh. Compton. I'm just like, why? That is just a weird, weird change. Maybe they just didn't notice it. Or, I don't know. Join us next month on Bloodsucky Feminist. We're going to do a film. We're going to do Anna Lily Amirpour's feminist Iranian vampire western A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Check your local Netflix, Amazon, or other places where you buy your movies. Um, it's it should be much easier to get hold of. And it's only two hours of your life. So... So get on board with that. So, um, if you want to get hold of us, we can be found at our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. You can email us at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G, because to paraphrase Eric, was it Eric? Oh, I think, no, to because to paraphrase Bill, puns are the highest form of um, humour. We're also on Twitter, bloodsuckingfem. We've got a Facebook page, Google bloodsuckingfeminist. Facebook, Google, whatever the Facebook search is, Black Second Feminists. We're also around on personal Twitters, websites, blogs. We occasionally write at bibliodays.com. Not, not too much about vampires, though. And is there anywhere else that we like to be? 
I mean, we do have a Facebook page, but, like, I really need to start using it. Like, just hit no. us up on Twitter. We're mostly there. <laughs> so, yes, that's us. Until next time, when you were the vampire, practice safe biting. I want to do real bad things with you.